You know who my novels, the stories I wrote? Yeah, what about them? I never felt as if I was writing anything of my own ideas. Well, the dreams have started again. I feel as if the future's trying to get in touch with me one more time. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Colin. And this time we are coming to you with another first. We have a special guest today who's actually a content creator. And to introduce him, I'm going to hand it over to Colin. So uh, just a, a brief bit of background. I'm the main researcher for the Pavement Podcasters, Pavement Pounders. And uh, I have been following a website called File 770. And on there, I noticed that a man named Michael Burstein had a short film that had been granted a Hugo extension last year. So I, I got a hold of Michael via Twitter and said, hey, we can't uh, go to the Spokane convention where they're going to be showing it, is there another way to get it? And Michael said, well, not not now, but if it happens in the future, then I'll let you know about it. And lo and behold, come in November, uh, the movie turned out to be available on on Vimeo. So you can you know pay a, a small fee and watch it. So we, we talked about it and we invited him to be with us here on the show today. So I'm very happy to introduce to you all Michael Burstein. Hi, thank you. It's great to be here. Well, we're going to be talking about Michael's story, I Remember the Future, which recently had an adaptation. But before we get to actually talking about the specifics of that story and that film, we want to get to know Michael just a little bit better. So, Michael, why don't you kind of introduce yourself a bit, tell us about your background, how you got into writing. Oh, well, um, thank you. That's actually could be a long question or a short question. The shorter version is that I have been writing and publishing science fiction stories since the year 1995, so over 20 years ago, when I had my first story appear in Analog. And I've been writing stories a lot since then, um, and have actually had some minor success in the short fiction field. In 1997, I won the John Campbell Award for Best New Writer from the members of Worldcon. And over the years, I've had a variety of my stories nominated for both the Hugo and the Nebula Award. Uh, and won a few other awards, too. Won some Analog Reader Awards from the Readers of Analog magazine. Um, haven't published a novel yet, although, of course, that's always possibly out there. You know, I, I was one of these kids who was reading the science fiction magazines as a kid. And often, many people around the age of 12 or so get the idea that they're going to write stories and send them into the magazines. I actually tried doing that when I was 12, and I got back some form rejection letters and also some very um, nice non-form rejection letters because the stuff I was sending was really bad. <laughs> you know, it, it was, I, I would have an idea and it would peter out after maybe two or three pages because I wasn't really thinking about, I didn't know how to write a real short story. So I actually spent quite a few years, I, I tried to do some fiction writing in college, but it didn't go anywhere. I was studying physics and that was taking up a lot of my time, obviously. And then when I was in graduate school studying physics, I... Uh, also decided I really wanted to publish science fiction stories. And that's when I started buying all these books on writing and reading them, trying to get a feel of what makes a good story. And I actually started to make inroads in the personal rejection letter note. You know, this is the sort of thing where you, know, you find that an editor thinks you've got promise, isn't going to buy anything from you yet. And, you know, and I'll always be grateful to Dr. Stanley Schmidt, who was editor of Analog at the time. You know, he started sending me personal notes, and then with one particular story, 
he said, I'd like to see this redone. I'd like you to do maybe do some stuff. I can't promise I'll buy it, but you know, here's some ideas. And at that point, I actually got accepted to the Clarion Science Fiction Writing Workshop, which was nice. uh, yeah being held at that time at um, Michigan State University. So the summer of 1994, I went there, met with uh, a lot of other writers, you know, students, uh, teachers, rewrote the story, and the following year it was my first publication, appearing in Analog. So that's pretty much how I got started. You know, not not going back to being like a kid and just scribbling. But that's how I got started writing fiction, and then, as I mentioned before, since then I've had some success with it. Cool, nice. I thought that was really cool, Michael. Um, what you were saying about how the you had—I um, don't remember his name—but you said that he helped you along. He gave you recommendations about how you can improve your work, and maybe eventually, you know, he'll purchase it from you. That was really cool that you found somebody like that. Part of it is that you have to actually have shown the promise. I mean, the market today is is somewhat different. If you're a new writer just starting out, mm-hmm. there are you know so many online markets now. Um, you you might receive a lot more people. If you're sending emails, they might send a, a, a boilerplate email rejection note. Mm-hmm. But you know, if an editor is interested in something that you've done. Um, the traditional way it has happened is that, you know, at least in the short fiction world, is that an editor would send you a note trying to encourage you because they, they think they see something promising right. in what you're doing, even though they know what you're doing is not yet up to where they want it. And, you know, in a way, I mean, I remember, you know, Stanley Schmidt, who was the editor of Analog, wanted to have, you know, his own stable of writers as it was you know this was how a lot of the short fiction magazines work and i think they still kind of work that way i mean i have not published an analog in a few years now and i really would like to get back to it but you know the editors you know they they start start a friend of mine uh who's local to me in the boston area jay o'connell has uh, been publishing you know shorter places shorter you know in in other markets for years but in the past few years he cracked asimov's finally and so i think Mm -hmm. he's starting to become kind of a regular there where he's uh you know he's sending stories to the editor sheila williams and she knows he can write stuff that's appropriate for her magazine and that's good work that, that her readers will appreciate so this is often what, what the editor wants to do. You know, because the editor's job is really to fill the magazine with the types of stories that mm-hmm. that magazine's readers want. And if they find that somebody can write stories like that or is getting closer, they're going to want to encourage that person. You know, Of course, the flip side of it right. is that every month you're getting hundreds of stories. And you, know, <laughs> you, you have to figure out how you're going to deal with all of those. So, right. But yeah, I, I, I was very lucky. Stan Schmidt actually shepherded a lot of writers. He published a lot of writers' first stories. And in fact, that's actually a tradition. I mentioned before, there's an award, the John Campbell Award for Best New Writer, that's given Mm -hmm. by WorldCon Mm -hmm. every year. You know, I was the recipient in 1997. The award's named for the editor um, of Analog before Stan Schmidt, actually in between Ben Bovo as editor. But John Campbell is sort of this very important figure in the field who really tried to pull science fiction out of one type of place it was in the pulps and bringing it to something more respectable and uh, you know he was known for wanting new writers there's actually a rather funny story um that is told that i i've never tracked down whether it's true or not but i'm pretty sure it is true that um campbell was at a convention once and there was a fan there you know a science fiction convention who said that he'd been trying to write stories that he would hope would be good for for astounding was the name of the magazine at the time you know the Campbell later changed to analog. Mm-hmm. And Campbell asked him, have you sent me any of the stories? And the, the fan said, no, no, they're not really good enough for you. And the story goes that Campbell grabbed him by the shirt and said to him, how dare you reject stories from my magazine? 
<laughs> wow. Nice. You know, basically, you know, the point being that it's not his job to do it. Write the story. Mm-hmm. Right. I'll be the judge of whether or not it's bad. And, and you know, he very, in fact, you know, I don't know, you know, if, if you've ever read Isaac Asimov's autobiography, he talks about his experience with Campbell. In bringing stories to Campbell and Campbell working with him personally to try to improve his stories, mm-hmm. uh, and of course it's a very different you know experience there because he, he lived in New York. He, his, his his parents or his father at least encouraged him to go to the office and meet Campbell, and Campbell actually wanted to meet with him. It was one of those uh, you know fascinating things that just worked out for him. And I mean, in my case, I I think. You know, I, I actually had a friend who knew Dr. Schmidt, who knew Stan. I had written a fan letter once before and gotten a personal reply, you know, asking about something he had done in one of the stories. So I think, you know, he kind of might have known who I was. But, you know, even then, I, he, my first stories to him, I got um, standard form rejection letters because those stories were not really up to par. So it wasn't until later that uh, he realized that I had some potential, and I'll always be grateful to him for that. You might be interested to know that um, one of the podcasts that we did in the past was about The Thing, which was adapted from a John W. Campbell story. Who goes there? Yeah. So, yeah. So that was a lot of fun. And just uh, for, for trivia, that was one of the ones where we got together to record, all got behind our microphones and didn't realize we'd never plugged the microphones <laughs> oh, into the computers. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, so, so, yeah, it, the audio quality on that episode, not great. But we still did at least get the conversation recorded. So it sounds like you are a science fiction fan from from way back. Um, you want to kind of tell us about your history as a fan? Uh, that that that's also a big question. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, my dad had been reading science fiction. I know, and he, and although when I came on the scene, I mostly remember him having a lot of mystery novels piled up. But but I have two older half brothers and an older brother. You know, and I grew up in a household where, you know, my older brother, like Star Trek was on and we would watch Star Trek. My dad was a big fan of Asimov. I, I actually have an article that you can find on my website that if, if your listeners want to go to later that I wrote called Asimov and Me, all about the time my dad brought us to meet Asimov. He was doing a book signing at a bookstore. My dad felt it was important for us to meet him. And, um, you know, I was reading the stories, you know, magazines and, and books at a young age. And also, as I mentioned, Star Trek, I was interested in the media, you know, um, it's it's interesting with with the new Star Wars movie that's out. I'm one of those people who saw the first Star Wars movie as a kid. I was a kid when it mm-hmm. came out, and I, I actually have uh, twin daughters of my own who are like just the right age, and I was delighted to be able to share the new movie with them. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I was I was a big fan. I, I think I, I tend to think most people who want to write science fiction, you're you're probably going to be a fan from the start. And of course, there's different levels of what it is to be a fan. I mean, I didn't, I I had read about in in, in Asimov's works about things like the Hugo Awards. I kind of knew that they were out there in the nebulous, but I didn't really know much about it. And I had been to one or two conventions that really weren't the biggest type of fan run convention. I'd been to some of the more, um, some of the conventions that are, are run for a profit. And I'd been to a convention that, that a college science fiction group had run. But it was actually when I, uh, met my, my my now wife, who brought me to my what I consider my first real science fiction convention, which was the Eurasia convention in the year 1992, January 92, um, in the Boston area. And I, I was like, where has this been all my life? And I started going to conventions. You know, we started going to conventions together. We bring our kids to conventions now. But we also got very involved in the New England Science Fiction Association. So the, I have the amusing point I can make, which is that you know, if you're talking about fan activity, you know, and, and things that fans do, from the years 1998 to 2000, I was serving in two capacities. I was secretary of Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, 
and I was vice president of New England Science Fiction Association. So I was secretary of a professional organization and vice president of a fan organization. Um, you know, so I, 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 I definitely have a foot in both camps, you know, like, like many yeah. writers do. You know, like many, many professionals are, are both fan and professional. Some tend to be more just the professional. And of course, and a lot of people are a fan. I tend to like, try to be as involved as I can in both. Well, that article you mentioned, the Asimov and Me, I'll make sure to put a, a link to that in the show notes oh, okay. for the podcast. Great. Maybe now is a good time to segue back onto the, the short story you had adapted. Oh, so let me tell you about I Remember the Future and how that came about. I'm, I'm going to talk about the book and the story first, yeah. and then we can talk about the movie later. So I had been publishing mm-hmm. short stories and been interested in having a collection put together and published. But the problem is that, to be honest, science fiction short story collections they don't sell very well usually. You know, they're, they're not the type of thing that a big publisher is going to do except if they're deciding to publish a bunch of novels and they're doing a deal. You know, often mm-hmm. you'll see, you know, a, a well-established writer has got a, a novels coming up from a publisher and they'll release a short story collection. And generally they're doing it because they know the writer wants a collection. Um, but I was very fortunate because the way it, ha- it went, came about you know, I had put together a plot, a plan for a collection, and um, a friend of mine, a writer named Jennifer Pelland, had been starting to write stories for a relatively new magazine called Apex Magazine, um, which was being published by a man named Jason Sizemore. And he he's based in Kentucky, and he was creating his own publication company, Apex Publication, wanting to do both books and his magazine. And he actually, told, after publishing a few stories by Jen, told her, I'm going to put together a collection of yours. I'm going to do a book. So she, I had been telling her about how I had been really wanting to get a book and nobody had been interested. But she thought that Jason might be interested in it. So um, she connected me with him. And I put him, you know, I sent him my, my prospective idea for a collection, which would be a rather not a huge book, but a largish book, because I said, you know, the, the key thing here is I can sell you a collection of all these stories that have been nominated for the Hugo and Nebula, because there, there's a bunch of them. I, I was nom- mm-hmm. up until this point, I think, been nominated 10 times for the Hugo and four times for the Nebula. And I did warn him, you know, I was kind of more, mo- really kind of modest about it, because like, this isn't really the type of fiction that Apex Magazine is known for. They do a very different sort of darker science fiction and my stories tend not to fall into that category. But, you know, if you're interested, here here's the stories and let me know what you think. And bless his heart, Jason came back to me within a week and said, I want to do your collection. And we went back and forth on what to do because he, he wanted to do originally a smaller book. But then he agreed to me, let's go with the, the award. Because I said to him, you know, we could do the award nomination books, and that's immediately, it's a built-in reason for people to buy the book. We could also put together the collection of stories that I feel strongest about. Not all of my favorite stories have been award nominees. But he said, let's go with the uh, the Hugo Nebula ones, but I need two new stories from you. Well, one of them was easy. I wrote a story, I had a story that was part of a series of stories I'd written, and I wanted to include it, so I put that together. But then we needed a title for the book, and we needed a title story. A high school friend of mine, Andrew Mark Green, was the one who gave me the title to use. It was like, what, what title should I use for my book? And, I, and I, I think I threw this out on LiveJournal at the time, social media, and a bunch of friends had recommendations, and he came up with the idea of a title, I Remember the Future. And I said, that's great, I'm going to use it. And then I needed, of course, to write a story 
that was tying into the title, I Remember the Future. What is this gonna, story going to be about? Well, as I mentioned in, in the afterword for the story, and of course this sort of does tie into Cosmic Corkscrew and paying it forward, um, Arthur C. Clarke passed away during the time that I was putting the, the collection together. And it made me realize that what I really wanted to do was write a story about the connection of science fiction to the past and to the future. You know, what, one of the things that is one of my personal obsessions, that, you know, and you can see this when you read writers' works, often you'll see similar themes pop up, similar stories, things that they, they always think about. One of mine is the question of how will we be remembered in the future? Will any of us mm -hmm. be remembered? And I had this idea for the short story, I Remember the Future, about an aging old science fiction writer who has spent his life writing stories for, you know, the, the, the pulp stories of the 30s and 40s, changing it in the 50s, trying to write something more um, new wave-ish in the 60s. You know, he, he's, he's, you know, he's always tried to write for the market, but um, he's sad about the way the world has gone. You know, he, he remembers, you know, dreaming of moon landings and building space stations and, and the future and going, you know, being this wonderful, great place. And, and he's coming to the end of his life and he's visioning, he's seeing what the world is like now. And, it, and to him, it's not the greatest thing. You know, I, I do share some mm -hmm. of his, the opinions that I gave to him, you know, not all of them. I mean, he doesn't like, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, people being more introspective and, you know, turning inward with like the cell phones and computers and we're not going into space. I kind of feel that way too, but I, I love my iPhone. <laughs> um, <Sure. laughs> and, um, but, you know, but I gave him, you know, a backstory in his life. And, and the way I wrote the story deliberately was I put in, if anyone, you know, if, if those of you who have read it, every, it basically has two things in it. I have little snippets of the stories he wrote, you know, pieces of the stories and novels he wrote that I wrote myself trying to mimic the styles of the science fiction writers in the 1940s and the 1960s and the 1980s, you know, trying to show something there. And I ha and, and I wanted to echo what was going on in his life on this day when his grown daughter, who is somewhat estranged from him, comes to visit and tells him that she's going to be moving away, you know, and it's his, his last you know, member of his family. You know, and, and she's never really been able to connect with him. You know, I envision him as somebody who was spending so much of his time lost in his work and in his stories that he wasn't really paying the attention, the close attention to his family that he should. Um, yeah. And I wrote this story, and, and I loved this story, and it's the title story of the book. Um, and I, it, was, uh, it was actually uh, nominated for... The Nebula, I think. I, I, I'm having trouble remembering. It, en it ended up being nominated, which is it was just kind of cool because you know the, the the book is supposed to be all my award nominated stories, and there were two extra stories right. in there, or maybe three extra stories that were not award nominated because we went well, right. There was one that had been published but not nominated because we had to include it in the cycle of, of these other stories I'd written, and then the two new stories. So one of the new stories got nominated for an award, so that was very nice. Yeah. And, you know, that was how the book collection came to be, and that was how the story came to be. Well, maybe at this point it would be good to talk about how the film adaptation came to be. There actually was a previous attempt to make a short film before the one that is currently available. Um, hmm. I got contacted at some point, I'm trying to remember where and when, by first a German film student who wanted the right? Wanted to license the rights to turn. I remember the future, specifically this story, into a short film, and 
we came to an agreement, and I licensed him very specific rights um, so that he could make his film. And he actually went so far. He cast some people. He created a trailer. I think you can still find it online. You know, all the actors obviously speaking German because it's a German film. Um, hmm. And it was it looked really uh, cool and interesting. And I, I was actually very much looking forward to seeing the finished film. But then the finished film never um, actually materialized. And then a little bit later, I don't remember the exact timeline, but I got another uh, filmmaker is interested in the story. And this guy was an Australian filmmaker, uh, a young man named uh, Clayton Aaron Stainer. And he got in touch and also wanted to license rights to make the film. And again, I, uh, you know, I, I have a lawyer who handles these things. We licensed, you know, very specific rights uh, for him to make his student film. And then actually, this is kind of a funny part. Um, I kind of completely forgot about it <laughs> because oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, you remember I mentioned my high school friend, Andrew Green, who gave me the title for the story. So I think he's got a Google alert uh, set up for that story. And, um, oh, nice. you know, and, and so I get, a, I get an email or a message or a phone call. I'm trying to remember. And he's saying, did, are you, did you sell film rights? Do I remember the future for, for, for some Australian filmmaker? And I'm like, no. I'm like, oh, right, yes, wait, I did, I did. And, and of course, I think part of the reason I forgot is that the, nothing ever came of the first film. So, you know, I just, right. I didn't think oh. anything was going to come of the second film. But then, you know, Clay was doing this as part of like his senior project at his university. It was, I think he was finishing off his film degree. So I started looking at what Clay was doing and I was completely delighted about how he was bringing this story to life. The vision of seeing these actors you know, up on the big screen. Well, I, I never really saw it on, on the big screen, but looking at, at some of the clips he did and looking at the trailer, and I was amazed. It was like, it really was bringing it to life and doing such a great job of it. And, and also I was amazed because, you know, some of the actors he had, the, my, the two main characters, the, the science fiction writer and his daughter, are, you know, are played by two well-known Australian actors. He's actually been an actor in Australian, I think, television and stage for years. Hmm. She's an actress who... You know, is a professional actress. She's actually was on the Battlestar Galactica reboot, the yeah, other one I, they did. She she played. Uh, I recognized her. Yeah, yeah. She 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 played. I forget that the the, the uh, Cylon and I think in the bathtub and and yeah, and, the and hybrid. Yeah, the hybrid. Thank you. And 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 like these, you know, he's got real people here who are willing to do this film for him. And and I was delighted. And I've actually gotten to know some of the actors who have been involved in the film now through social media. But um, he put the film together and. He sent it to film festivals, and it started winning all these awards and film festivals. And I kind of came to a realization, because, of course, there's the big question, like, why would two different independent you know, young filmmakers be attracted to this particular story? And I kind of realized what it was when I was watching Clay's film. Because, first of all, he, he really picked up on, even improved on, uh, my resonance between the pieces of the story. You know, how each um, each part of the you know, each story that my writer has written and is supposed to connect thematically with the next piece of conversation he's been having with his daughter, he really picked up on that and went further with it. In fact, one thing that, that I found, you know, I hadn't even thought about, but it makes so much sense, he had the same actress who plays his daughter play one of the characters he had created. And it was, right. it was the right character. I'm thinking, you know, that makes so much sense. Why didn't I even put anything like that in the story? I didn't, but obviously he saw it in there. But, you know, he, he, he also... Because I had written all these little different science fiction vignettes, as it were, set in different worlds almost, it actually is a great showcase story for a filmmaker. 
Because a sure. filmmaker, especially one who's interested in science fiction, can showcase and say, look, I can create a, a piece of science fiction film set in an ancient library. I can create one set on an abandoned world. I can create one set on people about to board a spaceship. You know, it's like you're, you're able to, you know, to do all these different things. And essentially, you're not stuck in, here's the one world I can create with my science fiction film. I can create all these different worlds for you. And, you know, and that's, that's when I realized this is why this is such a great story for somebody to decide to adapt. Um, anyway, the story has, you know, as I said, it won, uh, the big uh, place he submitted it to was World, what was it called? World Fest Houston, I think. That was like the first major film festival. And it won a Grand Remy Award, which is, from what I understand, a, a big deal in that festival. Oh. It won awards mm -hmm. in a few other places. And then he, and this was all through um, the year uh, uh, 2014, as he was sending it around. And then I got uh, permission from him to screen the film at some science fiction conventions and uh, some science fiction uh, uh, organization meetings. And, and actually, in fact, a year ago, you know, this month, I actually showed it myself. I screened it at the Eurasia Science Fiction Convention twice for, you know, two very enthusiastic audiences who were, you know, I mean, obviously a lot of people, there were people who knew me, but a lot weren't, and they were, they, they were blown away by the film. And, um, you know, I'm delighted to be able to say, as you guys have noted, you know, Clay and I talked about it a bit because, you know, I, I'm going to be perfectly frank here. I would love to see this film nominated for a Hugo and or a Ray Bradbury Award. You know, the Ray Bradbury right. Award is the one that the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America vote along with the Nebula. Uh, the Hugo Award, obviously, is the Hugo Award from Worldcon. You know, at the very least, I want the film to have a, a chance to have a shot out there and be eligible. There are some interesting, weird rules situations that go on here. The Science Fiction Writers of America, Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America, d determined that even though the film had been released in 2014 and gone to film festivals, it was not eligible last year because it didn't have a wide enough release. So that's how the, their rules work. On the other hand, Worldcon um, has different rules. And the moment a film is like released to a film festival, that's when the clock starts ticking. So here you had a film that was shown at, I think, two or three festivals in 2014, barely a chance for science fiction fans to see it shows up in, you know, I bring it to a convention in early 2015, but at that point, you know, it doesn't really have a shot and enough people seeing it to say, yeah, I like this film. I want to nominate it uh, in the, what is it, Best Dramatic Presentation Short Film Category or Short or, mm -hmm. or whatever they call it, the, the short version as opposed to the long version. So that actually, so, so here are the two things that, that happened. I first, you know, friends of mine who are going to be at Worldcon this year, because I couldn't go, and of course Worldcon did screen the film this year, I was very grateful to Sasquan for doing that, a fanish friend of mine, Chris Barkley, took the lead with a whole bunch of other fans signing on, requesting that the um, business meeting extend the film's eligibility for a year. This is something that you can do in special cases, like a film that has a short, a small release. And the business meeting overwhelmingly voted in favor of, yes, let's give this film one more year of eligibility. So that means that it is eligible for fans to nominate it this year for the Hugo. As for SIFWA, I had a slightly different thing I had to do there. Until the film had a wide enough release, they were not going to allow it to be considered eligible for nomination. But um, I talked with Clay, and Clay was able to arrange to put it up on Vimeo, uh, as you saw. And it's not a free download. You know, you have to. There's certain things you have to protect for the film's eligibility for festivals and other things. Uh, but it's a relatively inexpensive um, 
uh, renting it, viewing and downloading if you want to. And then that way it had a, now has a wide release. Anyone in the world has access to the film. So I was able to go back to the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and they ruled, yes, the film is now eligible to be nominated for the Bradbury Award. <laughs> so this is basically nice. the, the year for this to happen. 2016 is the year that if the science fiction writers, if the fans, if enough of them see the film, think it's worthy, um, then they can nominate it and we'll see what happens. You know, I have to admit, though, you know, the short film, the short uh, a form category, it's what's called short form, tends to get often in the Hugos, tends to be occupied by a lot of Doctor Who episodes. And, <laughs> oh. and as a Doctor Who fan myself, I have to say there were some really good episodes in 2015 that... Uh, um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And... and you know, there's, there's other interesting, funny things about this, because the film, I don't know how Worldcon and the Hugos do it, but um, even though the film is based on my short story and I'm sort of in the credits, it's story, you know, story by me, the film was directed by Clay, written by Clay and, and his co-writer, because you know they have to adapt it. So I'm in this weird position that if the film gets nominated for the Bradbury... I do not get nominated. <laughs> it, it doesn't. Oh. It doesn't come on to me as oh, well. Weird. But well, you know. But I mean, I understand that. You know, it, it's uh, mm -hmm. it, it, that's the sure. way it works. Um, so, but I, I would just be delighted for Clay's sake if for, for him to get these nominations. And I know that you know. I, I think I'm I'm beating the drum more than he is. You know, the, I, he does love science <laughs> fiction, but you know, th this is really more more. You know, as I said, I'm both a fan and a professional. The, you know, these are the worlds I know. So, you know, he's been very helpful in. Um, you know, the fact that he did make it available finally for this wider release um, is just wonderful because it, it does mean more people can now enjoy the film. So, you know, I, and, and it's odd because I've had friends in New York City who wanted to see the film. Um, and a lot of people don't necessarily understand how every part of this process works. You know, people wonder, why can't I just, you know, arrange to have the film shown at a theater in New York? Well, it's a 30-minute film. It's a short film. Yeah. It's not the kind of thing that a big studio is going to pick up and distribute nowadays. You know, we don't live in the in the days when you spent your nickel, you went to the theater all day. Mm -hmm. You know, you you were watching newsreels and cartoons and a short subject and a long subject. You know, so you know there there's that factor involved. And also, you know, as I try to explain to people, you know, this is really it's not my film. It's Clay's film. You know, I I, I mean, it's based on my story, but um, you know, I can't just you know, single-handedly say, we're showing the film here, we're showing the film there. You know, I had to get permission from Clay to, to show it at Aresia, to show it. Uh, it was shown at Boscone last year, but I got snowed out of being able to attend that. So I, I you know, to show it at Sasquatch. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there are all these different factors involved. But in the end, the film is now available for anyone to watch who is willing to pay a few bucks to watch it. And I am hoping that will include uh, science fiction fans or members of Worldcon who would like to uh, consider it for uh, a Hugo nomination. Well, we will certainly put it out there for our listeners. I'll, I'll put a link to the video where they can find it. And I believe the story is available from the Apex site. I, I, the, the story should be available for free on the Apex site. Uh, it was posted okay. up there a while back. And um um, I'm pretty sure you should be able to find that link. Uh, there's also a web page devoted to the film, so you should also put up a link to that. So before Definitely. just looking to the video, you know, to, the, to the, the direct link to Vimeo, you can, they can go to the web page and see all of this background material and all these stills and all these other wonderful things uh, that, that, the, that the entire filmmaking team put on there. I mean, I really should emphasize, I, I say it's Clay's film, but, uh, and I'm sorry I'm not naming all of them because I don't want to miss anyone, but his co-writers and, and you know, the... the um, 
the, the person who wrote the music and, and, and how they found their sets and put those together and their designers and all the actors and actresses who brought this to life, I am eternally grateful to them. Yeah, it, it, I can imagine it's got to be really, really cool to see your work brought to life that way. It is. You know, it, it's, 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 it's just fascinating because um, it's, it's interpreted through their own lens and ideas. And mm-hmm. for me... It, it was just it was the perfect fit with with with, with this particular team because he they really got it understood what I was trying to get at in how they created the story that the way they did it how they how they turned it into a film um, yeah. you know I, I I'll tell you it, it, I would be delighted to work with with them again to work with Clay again if he you know found another story he wanted to adapt or even a longer project but uh, you know we'll see what happens you know I, I, I don't actually remember the future so I can't tell you what really is going to happen but uh. right <laughs> I, I'd love to see um, Broken Symmetry um, filmed oh. I think that's a great story I, and it was funny because I was telling I think I was telling Colin so I started reading the story and right at the beginning of it as soon as you had introduced the superconducting super collider I went oh wouldn't it be cool if there was if there were parallel universes and the particles crossed over and then, then of course that's, that's exactly what you did. And, um, so one thing I wanted to follow up with, mm-hmm. um, just kind of from your bio is, th- is that you have that background in physics. Yes. And I know that not all science fiction writers have a science background, but I have to imagine that it's a great asset in writing science fiction. You know, th- there's a funny story I like to tell when I, even before I, I, I went to Clarion, actually one of the first people to recommend I go to Clarion uh, was a science fiction writer who's one of my favorites. I admire her work tremendously, Nancy Cress, uh, probably best well known for her novella and novel, Beggars in Spain. And I remember when I first met her at a convention, I think it was a Philcon, she was actually impressed with my scientific background and said, it's good that you have that, that will help you with writing science fiction. But I was impressed with how she had written this, you know, th- this story. And I asked her about what her scientific background was, and she she admitted to me, she told me that she had picked up a lot of the biology she needed for that that story from uh, an AP Biotechs book that I think one of her hmm. kids was using in school. And oh, wow. and so she 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 was looking at me as somebody who has a master's in physics, you know, and this is a a very useful thing to have to write science fiction. But I was looking at her as somebody who really understands that. You know, you can write science fiction even without a science background, as long as you're sure. willing to do the research and see what is out there. And, and in fact, it's funny because you mentioned Broken Symmetry. I I, I, I loved that story, and, and I still do. And, and I was very glad that that people liked it. Although, you know, I, as I tend to think about it in retrospect, I realized that one of the things they did there was write a story that would really appeal to physicists. But, you know, right. that's a very small market out there. Not every physicist reads science fiction. <laughs> sure. um, but I, I still remember after I had the story published and a friend of mine read it and noticed that I had used the tool of what's called a squid, you know, a, a superconducting quantum interference device to right. for two universes to communicate with each other. And, and this friend of mine said, oh, could two universes really communicate using a squid? And I was like... If I had the answer to that, I wouldn't be writing science fiction stories. <laughs> I would be at Stockholm collecting a Nobel Prize. Exactly. You know, but 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 again, a lot of it was trying to look at you know what's actually going to work. What is our current scientific understanding? And and this particular type of device kind of made sense as something that you could use to bridge universes. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's the sort of thing you, you do try to stay on top of if you're if you're trying to write what they call hard science fiction, science fiction that is based on real science as much as possible you you often 
you know, want, I mean, not every story is going to be like that. Not even every one of my stories is, but I, I do like to try to play that game. And mm-hmm. some of the things I try to do is acknowledge what is out there in our current understanding of theory. And, and in fact, there, one example I was just thinking about recently, time travel. You know, time travel is a something that people have tried to figure out how it could be done and nobody's really got the exact perfect theory that would make it work. And there, there are always these questions, well, where are the time travelers? But one of our current mm-hmm. understandings of how time travel might work um, implies... That time travel, the reason that we're not visited by time travels from the future, is that time travel can only happen back to the point at which the time machine is created. Um, you right. know, this sort of comes out of, I, I think, the, you know, the wormhole theory. Take a wormhole, accelerate it really fast away the, the other end and bring it back and then you have a time machine. And, and so mm-hmm. one of the things that impresses me, I don't know if you're familiar with a little movie called Primer. Uh, that came out a few years ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the things that impressed me about Primer was that they were using that theory of time travel. And and as much as people talk mm-hmm. about how confusing the film is and how difficult it is to understand the time travel, you know, the, you know, the, the re- repeated loops in there, the thing that I felt that they were trying to get right was that the, the, the guys who create it can only, that's why they have to get into these boxes and, and it only brings them back. And, and, and it's exactly how the theory currently is envisioned, that you'd have to spend right. that same amount of perceived duration and you can only go back to the point where the machine was invented. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so in Broken Symmetry, you know, I was playing a little faster and looser with hard science, but the, the, the studies I'd done in, implied to me that a superconducting quantum interference device would be a, a good way of, of coming up with a reasonable explanation for how um, you could communicate across parallel universes. You, you might be interested to know that we're all science types. We're all engineers. And so, so like, hard science fiction does tickle us in the right way. Um, but yeah, it, it is, it's neat for us as people who are scientifically literate to see little gems in there about, um, about real science. And one of the things that I picked up in Broken Symmetry, and I'm sorry, you guys, I know you, I'm not sure either of you have been able to read that one yet, but no. it, there's a resonance between that to me and I Remember the Future. And if you'll bear with me, I think I can, I think I can come up with it, but Broken Symmetry, there was an obvious, to me at least, and Michael, you can tell me if I'm right, um, almost a lamentation over the superconducting supercollider, the fact that that project didn't happen uh, in our universe anyway. And am am I right about that? You, You are absolutely right about that. At the time I was writing that story, or actually, well, actually before I wrote the story, I was planning to work on the superconducting supercollider. Wow. Um, I was in graduate oh, wow. school. I was interested in doing particle physics. That that was where my, my inclination was. And I was going for my master's degree and then would have gone for my PhD. And I wanted to work on that. And in, in, in addition, uh, Roy Schwitters, the, the real scientist who was made the director of the collider as they started trying to build it, was a former professor of mine. Hmm. I, I took freshman physics from him. Um, I actually had to get his explicit permission to use them in the story because the editor wanted that before I would run it. And he was, uh, Professor Schwitters was, was amused, but I think delighted that I, I put him in the story. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, no, I, I remember this very well because I, I took my master's and I left grad school in the spring of 1993 because I said, you know, I don't think I'm going to get a chance to work on this project. And in the fall of 1993, Congress cut the project and killed it. Oh, so man. you suddenly had a lot of people who had been planning to work on it, trying to figure out what else they were going to do with their time. I had actually already moved on into um, 
you know, trying to, to write, you know, continuing to, to hope to write stories and, and teaching, which I, I had been enjoying immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it, it's actually funny. One of the things I talk about graduate school, I, I plan to leave earlier. I, I like to say this because I'm one of the few people in the world I think can say this. I made a point of, even though I was done with all my requirements for a master's, I stuck around grad school for one extra semester just so I could take advanced general relativity. You don't wow. get many people can say that. <laughs> no. uh, but don't ask me any questions now. It's been quite a few years, and I don't quite remember everything I learned. But um, seriously, yeah, no, I, I had wanted to work on that project. I was looking forward to the, the new science that had been generated by it. I was looking forward to the United yeah. States taking a you know leading role in, in high-energy physics and particle yep. physics. And I was one of many people who was disappointed when the project was cut. I was also disappointed in how the scientific community was, was acting. They, they were getting testimony from other scientists arguing against this project, trying to claim, well, you know, and, and they, were, they basically had all these scientists arguing over a small pie of science dollars. And I kept thinking, guys, you, you, you're, you're being divided here. The, the question is not, do we spend the money on this project or that project? The question is, how can we all work together to get more money so all of the valuable science projects are defend, are, are, are funded? You know, yeah. I'm, I'm reminded of, of that story that years ago, I think it was Robert Wilson, director of Fermilab, was talking about some basic research, and he was asked by you know, a, a congressman or senator, you know, will this you know, help us defend the country? And, and Wilson's response was, well, no, sir, but we'll make the country worth defending. Hmm. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I, I mean, I wrote Broken Symmetry in some ways as a wish fulfillment story. Yeah. You know, it was, it was my way of, of creating a world in which they actually, well, two things. One, which created the world in which the, the project had gone forward, but also as a, as a kind of, you know, cautionary tale in a sense. Say, look, you didn't fund the project and see what's happening. Because of that, there are antimatter explosions and it's killing people. You should have funded right. the project. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I, I really wanted to see it happen. It, it's actually interesting. There's a, a great other novel out there by a writer named John Kramer, who's a physicist. Um, you know, and I'm blanking on the title. I think it may be called Einstein's Bridge. You can look that up later. But he wrote it, you know, around the same time this was, was published and it came out a little later. And he wanted the superconducting supplier to go ahead, but it didn't. Um, but he wrote a novel in which he basically ac- ac- accounted for the history. It, he has these two scientists in a world in which the collider gets built. And because of that, I think rips a hole in the universe and it destroys Earth. So these guys get thrown back in time and they have to manipulate events to make sure the collider never gets built in the first place and thus create our real history. So in a a way, I think that was his way of of dealing with this. Um, And then, of course, there's the writer, I think it was Herman Wouk, a few years later, wrote a novel called A Hole in Texas about the big hole in Texas. That, that, and he's not a science fiction writer. It wasn't really right. science fiction per se. But I, I, you know, I'm not the only person who revisited this, this uh, abandoned project as a, um, as a writer. So the connection that I, that I was alluding to, and I remember the future, is I finished reading the story and I immediately jotted down in my, in my notes that I keep for the podcast. Um, the author keenly feels the loss of the big three. That's, that's what I put in there. And I was assuming that the the author of the story and the author of, uh, I'm sorry, the, yeah. the author in the story and the author of the story kind of shared that. Um, and, and in kind of in the afterward, I can see that that's very much where the story came from, lamenting the death of Arthur C. Clarke. I think, was he the last of the big three to Clark, pass on? Clarke was the last of the big three to pass on. Yeah. Heinlein was first, then Asimov, then Clarke. You know, as you, as I mentioned, you know, my, my, 
little article, Asimov and Me, that was published in the fanzine Mimosa, I, I got to know Asimov a bit. I met him a few times, got to interact with him. Never met Heinlein, never met Clark. You know, I kind of regret that and bemoan that to some extent. And, I, you know, I feel a certain, you know, it's kind of difficult to explain in some ways because I, I love the direction in which the field of science fiction has moved. I, I, I am delighted by so many of the stories and novels that I read now, but I also feel a certain sense of um, loss, as it were. You know, I, I would I would love to think that this is a world in which people do need to or want to go back and read some of the earlier people who are the pioneers, and especially Asimov's stories, uh, Heinlein's, Arthur C. Clarke's. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you know, it, it is a different world. There, as, as they used to talk about in the Golden Age, you know, there was a time when you could read every single science fiction story that was being published because there was so few, little of it, so few of it. And now, you know, science fiction is such a larger um, amount of the culture and, and, and such a, uh, and thankfully such a broader tent that, that should just be getting broader that, you know, it, it's impossible to really do that anymore. Um, so you, you, you sort of have the question, you know, people used to bemoan the idea that you should, you know, let's say time travel, you know, well, how could you possibly read a, write a new time travel story unless you read, you know, Heinlein's All You Zombies and Buy His Bootstraps? Well, you know, nowadays, it's unlikely that most people are going to read those stories, but it doesn't necessarily mean that what they're writing is irrelevant or bad. It, it's just that, you know, it, it's a different world in which to write these stories. Uh, but yeah, I, I do miss it. And, and um, you know, I think about the fact that I, I I will look at, I mean, I loved Asimov's short stories. You know, a lot of people, Asimov's best known for the Foundation series, the Robots series, but I was collecting all of his unconnected short stories. I think he was a master of the short story craft of, of, of science fiction ideas into short stories, and those are the things where I really loved reading. Um, and I think that, you know, not everybody's going to read these things, and it, it kind of makes me sad. But on the other hand, um, you know, world has have to move on, and the stories will always be there and available for people to read. Um, but I, I want people to at least sort of acknowledge and remember that we were never here first, that there were, there were people who, you know, were, did their best to, to kind of set up and figure out how this field was going to work and what we were going to dream and imagine and, you know, and give us the ability to continue dreaming and imagining about the future. Nice. Yeah. And one thing that we've, kind of done with with our show is we have tried to highlight some of those older stories i mentioned that we uh we talked about who goes there and we've we've covered a couple Heinlein stories and um i think we did irobot um and we we actually later on this year are going to be talking about 2001 which is based wow. on a, a story by arthur c clark so the sentinel yeah the sentinel exactly yeah you know your stuff <laughs> <laughs> thank you i try yeah and and so yeah, we we feel like it's kind of. I, I wanted to ask you, you know, what can we do to help preserve that legacy that's there? That's a very good question, and it, it's not one to which the answer is most readily apparent to me. I think one of the things that that we can't necessarily do legally, at least, you know, is that I think more of this stuff should be available as eBooks and electronically. You know, I I, I sometimes look to see what's current work. What are the currently available ebooks of Heinlein and Asimov and Clark and other writers. And, and not all of it is is necessarily immediately available in the formats that you would want to read. Right. Um, I mean, I would love to see things reprinted. I, I know, I mentioned before I was vice president of the New England Science Fiction Association, which we also call NESFA. Many years ago, NESFA decided to set up its own small press, NESFA Press. 
and they make a point of keeping in print a lot of older science fiction that's good stuff that may not necessarily get an audience unless it's, they make sure it's out there. You know, they, they became the publisher of Cordwainer Smith, you know, the, oh, the wow. book The Rediscovery Man. All of his short stories are in this one volume uh, that you can get because of the for Press. Um, they've been doing now, a, been collecting Poole Anderson's short stories from the very beginning. They, they did a whole collection of, I think, every story C.M. Cornbluth wrote. I mean, you know, the fact is that, that if it weren't for a group like them, these stories wouldn't be available for people. So I think that's one part of it. I think another part, though, also has to be figuring out what you really should give to somebody today to read. Because... You know, you, you look at the Heinlein juveniles, for example, and a lot of people mm -hmm. who grew up in science fiction swore by the Heinlein juveniles. But honestly, these are not books that are going to appeal to today's, you know, young adult audience. You know, and they've got so much of their own young adult science fiction that's being written for them. You know, I mean, it's not like there's a dearth of it. You know, they, they can just grab the Hunger Games a divergent off the shelves. You know, the, these are stories being written for them, and everybody's and you know, they're they're science fiction. Um, I think what we need to do is look at the stuff that we think is going to appeal to people, and we have to do. And sometimes you have to do this individually. You know, I, mean, I, I look at my own kids, and I want them to be interested in the things I'm into. I want them to be into superheroes and comic books. I want them to be into Star Wars, mm -hmm. and so I and, and Doctor Who, and I and I make a point of exposing them to these things, and we see what sticks and what doesn't. You know, I'm delighted to say that, you know, both of my kids have taken a liking to Star Wars, and one of them especially has just gone absolutely wild with, with loving Star Wars. And, and, and she wants, she, she, you know, she wanted to see the prequels. <laughs> so we actually showed her the episode one, and she seems to have liked it. And uh, although I did ask her, I said, did you like this? Did you like this? I said, did you like Jar Jar Binks? And at that point, she sort of was shut down, you know. It's like, good, okay, this kid has some taste. All right, um, that's good parenting. I like yeah. her already. Well, 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 I, well, let me tell you a story. I love this. We, we showed them all the, the, the Star Wars trilogy, the, the original one, just a few months ago in preparation of the new movie. But we'd actually shown them the first Star Wars movie a year ago. So about in November of 2014, I, I, I'm sitting down with my two kids, and we're watching Star Wars. And one of my kids, she she's the kind, she's like me as a kid. She gets scared by some of this stuff, more scared. She gets a little worried about it. And, and, and that was exactly how I was. I had difficulty watching these movies, you know, movies like this when I was a kid. So when we're getting near the end, oh, by the way, here are spoilers for A New Hope, you know, so I don't, I hope, you know, if anyone's listening, that you don't, you know, <laughs> that you've seen the movie. So we're getting close to the end when Luke is, needs to, you know, destroy the Death Star, but everybody's been killed and, and, and all the other, and, and it, it looks like Darth Vader is going to attack him and kill him. And I turned to one of my kids, and who looks very wise, I said, I don't want you to be worried. Um, somebody is going to show up. Uh, to help save Luke, you know, because I'm thinking of Han Solo and Chewbacca showing up in the Millennium Falcon. Mm -hmm. But at the moment I say to her, someone's going to show up to save Luke, she looks at me in all seriousness and says, is it the doctor? <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. And, and I actually posted this on Facebook, and of course people said, yeah, you're raising them right. You know, it's like, I, I just thought it was the greatest <laughs> crossover ever. I could just see the TARDIS showing up and helping out just to, to make sure the Death Star gets destroyed. You know, I, I, I've gone on with this one question you've asked in, in all these different directions, but because I think part of it is that I, I, I kind of worry that there will be a point at which all of this will be forgotten, um, which again is the theme of a lot of my work, including I, I remember the future and paying it forward. But um, I kind of hope not. I, I hope there will always be somebody out there, uh, even if it's an academic in a dusty old hall, who's interested in rereading the stuff and seeing 
you know, how we tried to create the future and tried to create the best possible future we could uh, for the human race. That's that's one of the things I really like about our pat our podcast is that we've been able to bring up some old old science fiction and show people that uh, things that they're familiar with actually came from science fiction stories written by popular authors. Um, in fact, we just did Frankenstein, and then learning about all the differences between Frankenstein the story and Frankenstein the popular green monster. Yes, and it's, it's they're very different in many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's one of the things I actually really like when we cover something that has kind of a classic adaptation from the 50s maybe and then one that was done in the 80s or in the in the 2000s where you have kind of two examples of an adaptation of of an original work and the two movies may be very much of their time but they can be appreciated kind of on that basis and i i think it's it's kind of up to the fan to or you know the viewer to be able to kind of put themselves into that mindset of okay this is the fly but it's the 50s version of the fly um, and yeah, okay, maybe the teleportation doesn't make so much sense, but still, it's such a great story. Yeah, and 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 also the day the Earth stood still. I, I never right. saw the remake. I saw the original, and I, I enjoyed that a lot. And I think it's still enjoyable. But you know, yeah. they, they wanted to change what 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 the the issue was on the on the planet. And of course, you know, the issue has right. changed. But um, sure, you know, but but some, sometimes you know, a film is not necessarily going to a remake is not necessarily going to work. Uh, yeah, and, definitely. You know, you have to ask. You know, is it better to do a remake of something? Is it better to to you know come up with something completely new? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I think of like two of my favorite TV shows, Star Trek and Babylon Five. And Star Trek was written. The original Star Trek was created at a time when this country needed a message in the late 1960s of we will get through this and things will get better. Right. You know, and needed that sort of optimistic message. And when Babylon Five was being produced in the 1990s, it was sort of a very different message. You know, there, there was still the idea that, the, of, that there's a future for us, but that no longer needed to be the, we'll get through this and things will get better. You know, we were more mature in some ways, a little, you know, more cynical, more, more edu- understanding about the world. And it was definitely much more of a story of human beings are always going, and, and others are always going to be, you know, political in certain ways and there's always going to be these issues of this fight between you know like the good side and the bad side you know almost like a star wars thing but but we will continue to move forward um but but it's a very different view of the of the star trek universe you know i mean gene roddenberry had an idea when star trek that all of the the heroes had to be you know exemplars of humanity and not be in conflict with each other and babylon 5 was more no we can be in conflict you know um Roddenberry and 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 Straczynski, who created Babylon Five, were both atheists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Roddenberry's view is trying to leave, you know, keep religion. I actually wrote an essay about this for for a book that's being reprinted this year, a Star a Star Trek collection called Boarding the Enterprise. Uh, you know, Roddenberry was trying to downplay the the existence of religion in the future, and Straczynski, you know, just embraced it because you know he, in, in a way, I don't want to say he was smarter than Roddenberry, although I, I think he was un- more understanding Roddenberry. You know, we're not we're not going to have a future in which this is just going to disappear. You know, you know, there's going to be a future with all the stuff that you know, all the things that humanity has now, we're going to continue to bring with us into the future. So, I, I think there's definitely, you know, a, a thought there that sometimes it's not remaking an old thing to try to create. A, a, a vision that works for today, but sometimes you just have to think, what is a new way to present a vision? Uh, you know, an entirely new story. You know, I, I was thinking, you were talking about Star Wars. 
you know, and I, I presume not, not, not everybody really knows this. A lot of people, they know the story about how George Lucas was trying to create Star Wars based on the, the hero's journey, you know, the hero of a thousand faces, Joseph Campbell's work. But originally what he was really trying to do was get the rights to remake Flash Gordon. Can you imagine what would have happened if he had gotten those rights? <laughs> wow. Lucas would have created a, a science fiction film that a small group of fans would be talking about as a cult classic over the years and say, yeah, this was really cool and not enough people are watching it. You really should see it. But yeah. because he couldn't get those rights, he had to really create his entire own universe and and, and, and see where we are today. With I, I, I could not believe it last month. It's I'm sitting there in a theater, and I'm watching the words Episode 7 mm-hmm. scroll in front of me, and I'm like, I don't believe it. It's like I'm a seven-year-old kid again. You know, it, it's just... Yep. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. So we've been going on a bit, um, just kind of on all topics, which is awesome, Michael. You're... you're Amazing. Uh, well, you. you could go all night, I think. Um, <laughs> I, I could. I shouldn't. Because, you know, here, okay. Over here in the well, East Coast, it's a little later than it is there, and I need to do have to get to bed at some point soon. That's but true. Yeah. I, I have um, a big day tomorrow. Anyway. And, you know, normally we, we tend to focus down on, on one work, and, and in this case, it's I Remember the Future. And so I, I want to make sure that the other guys get to kind of jump in and um, bring up any topics about the specific, about the story or about the movie. Colin, you got anything? Yeah, you know, I was... Um, I was curious about how you felt about it as an adaptation. One of the, the biggest topics that we spend our time talking about on podcasts is uh, how faithful is the adaptation, and then do we like the result of that? And we've never actually had the opportunity to ask somebody that has written something and seen it adapted and kind of put that question back in their lap. Well, like I said, I I love the adaptation that he did. I'm, I'm glad I did. You know, I, I can't imagine how I would feel if I hated it. <laughs> um, right. You know, but I, I, like, I think... What made it really work for me, besides all the love that he obviously put into it and all of the details that, that Clayton Stainer and his team you know, found to put together, was that he made a point, and I, I know I said this before, I'll say it again, he made a point of really going into the story and looking for the things I put in the story. For those resonances, for those, you know, how, mm-hmm. why did I write the story this way? Why am I connecting these pieces? And he wanted to bring that to the forefront in his adaptation. And even more than that, I, I could see exactly how dedicated he was to making this a good film. Because if you, if you go on the website, you will discover that, you know, like one of the scenes I have written is about the, the spaceship that, that's uh, fighting the bad guys and they're trying to get the black hole Omega, I called it, you know, very, very mm-hmm. pulpy science fiction type of thing to... to to, to help them. And one of the characters is this, I don't even think he has any lines. Maybe he's got a line or two. I, I don't remember, but he's, he's one of the aliens on the spaceship kind of at the helm. Uh, it had a definitely a, had a, a bit of a Stargate feel to me, I'll, I'll say. And if you go to the website, he's got this entire backstory written for this character, you know, who oh, this cool. guy is, where he comes from. And of course, none of this is stuff I had written, but I, it, it showed me two things. It showed me he really cared about this enough to want to, you know, explain where where are more of these characters coming from also there's there's something i remember reading once years ago i've read a lot about screenwriting and directing and there was a film director who even for every single extra he would give them something a piece of business to use as an actor he would say you're late for a meeting or you're thinking about your wife and you're worried about this or Hmm. you know you're you're thinking about your husband and you're worried about that just something as they're walking in the background of the scene they're not just an extra walk in the background. They've got their own role to play. And so I realized he was making sure that even 
the, 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 the minor characters, you know, the actors playing the characters that are there had their own backstory and their own concerns and thoughts in life so that the actors could use their, their abilities as actors to, to, to give the movie that much more life to it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I just, I, I love, there's the scene with the family that's going to, to Mars. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there, there's the robot dog, as, as I recall. Mm-hmm. And I just, mm-hmm. I loved that. I just thought, I, I want one of those. I want them to mass totally. produce them and sell them. You know, but, but it, again, it, it just, he really knew what I was trying to get at in the story. And he brought that to life. And, and I think nowhere is that more explicit than, than the casting of the same actress as... Um, the writer's daughter and the captain right. of that starship. Because when you yeah. see, you know, and I don't, I'm not going to spoil the film for people, but, but you know, when you see how that plays out by the end of the film, it, it's really hitting you um, incredibly. Like, oh my god, this this is this is who this guy. And, and I want to say, you know, I mean, the writer in the story, Abraham Beard. I mean, obviously, I agree with him to a great extent on you know, what, 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 what the future should have brought. But, but also, you know, the fact is that I, 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 you know, he's not likable in the fact that he did it. He really did pour so much more of himself into his career than into his kids. You know, I mean, he clearly did neglect his daughter and 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 he should not have done that. And so, you know, I, I I see him both, I see them both as sympathetic characters, but then you see, you know, how that plays out and you're thinking, wow, this is, you know, th- this is really where he, he put his energies, you know, and, and, and I do, people have asked me about, you know, what this, I, I know I'm going beyond your question here, but, you know, what happens after this scene? What what happens with his daughter, you know, mm-hmm. at, at the end of the movie? And, I, and I've thought about it and I don't, I, I mean, I don't have a perfect answer, but but I, I, I like to assume that she, you know, deals with it in her own way and she goes back and, and she, she obviously, I, I see her as somebody who, because of the way that she, um, was brought up, and because of the the fact that she kind of felt her dad was you know didn't really wasn't as invested in her as somebody that that she even with her husband and their their joint careers is going to make sure that both she and her husband um, give their own kids a sense of of worth and value as the children of of who they are. Hmm. So it it was interesting watching that scene more than in the story, I kind of felt like because of that shared actor, after I reflected on it, I thought at the end, he is essentially saying, no, my work is my family almost. And, and I wasn't sure what, how I felt about that. Um, as, as a father, you know, that, that I, I thought, no, I, I never want to let myself get to the place where work is more of a priority than my family. I, I will tell you something. I wrote this story before I was a father. Mm. So, um, I, I, I completely agree with you. You know, I, I, I'm very sympathetic toward Abraham Beard. I, I um, um, think that uh, I agree with him on many things. When I wrote that, I was not a father myself. And I'll mm. tell you that being a father, I am so invested in my kids. But at, at the same time, it is a struggle. You know, we, 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 a lot of, we have day jobs. We have other things. I, I have other commitments, you know, in, in the town. I, I'm where I, where I live, I'm chair of our, our local library trustees. So I have a lot of meetings to go to. I have a lot of things I have to, I have to oversee. 
you know, um, my, my wife is also very involved with things, you know, in, in our community. And we find that there are times that there, there are things that we miss out on, you know, that we have to be away for a night for a meeting and, and our kids really want us for something. And it becomes, it becomes a difficult balance. But I try to make sure that my kids always understand how important they are to me. You know, although it's interesting, you remind me, you know, talking about what, what my character and he did of, of a story that he, he tells in his autobiography that Isaac Asimov, um, you know, his daughter Robin, who he, he talked about how much he clearly doted on her as she was growing up, that she once asked him, you know, if you had to choose between me or writing, what would you choose? And Ouch. he says to her that he told her that I would choose you, of course. But he then says, but I hesitated and she noticed that. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I think that that's a, a you know significant thing. You know, I, I will tell you that if you were to say to me now, you know, you you've got a choice between your you know your kids or your writing, you know, what would you choose? I'd say my kids completely. And if you were to say, yeah. well, what if that meant eliminating your entire writing career from all the way back to the beginning? I would say, do I still have my kids? That's what I would choose. You know, yeah. um, so. Well, I think in the story at the end, he actually did choose that. Where he he put his desires to share his news uh, below her desire to go and start this this new life and career that she and her family are going to have in California, right? And that I think to me was one thing in the movie that I felt like if if we had had a slightly longer film, maybe we could have gone a little further towards um, following up on some of the things that I think are kind of subtext in the story. Um, and aren't as effective in the film. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to crap all over the film, of course, um, because, I, you know, it's, yeah, it was great. And, yeah. and, and yet I'd like to see, you know, some evidence that of what's going on, you know, is she thinking that he's getting senile? Is she worried, you know, that, that he's cracking up um, that, and that she never really had that relationship with him that she wanted? You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, I mean, obviously, prose fiction and a film adaptation are two different things. There are certain things that you yeah. can show in one and you can't show in the other. Um, and I would say that you, you, you have to, you know, ask, you know, as a filmmaker, you know, he had to make certain choices of yeah. what was he going to show? What, what, what do you choose for adaptation? What do you, um, not, what, what, can, what do you have to leave out? You know, and, and what do you add? You know, what do you make as, as a, as a new special thing? Right. So I, I think that, that, that what you ask is something that I don't know if I actually dealt with as much in the story. Um, and, and to be honest, there are sometimes there are things that you ha I haven't always completely thought through in my stories. You know, I'll mm -hmm. write a story. You know, I, I remember I wrote one. I have one story out there that um, is uh, actually free for people to read. It's a story called Lifeblood. It was my attempt to write, you know, my take on, you know, how would a, a Jew fight a vampire, you know, being Jewish myself. Oh. I wanted the idea of, you know, do you, you know, do you hold up a Star of David as opposed to a cross? But I wrote this story, you know, almost as a lark when I wrote it. It was originally published in a book called New Voices in Science Fiction. But then John Joseph Adams picked it up as a reprint for his By Blood We Live anthology, a, a very good collection of vampire stories, some new and some reprint. And he I've had, read a number of, of his anthologies. Oh, he, he, he does some great anthologies. And yep. um, he put this, he asked for my permission to put this up on the web for free. And I said, sure. But the thing about the story is that as I reread it and people are telling me about it, they kept showing me things I put in the story that I had never intended to put in there. I didn't realize I was putting hmm. in there. And that the story itself is actually displaying author biases that in, in a way that sometimes I will read, read and think, I think I was a little too heavy handed here. On the other hand, you know, I did get to like write this 
type of story. So I, yeah. in the case of I Remember the Future, you know, I didn't completely think through what she was thinking about her father because I think I saw her as being so isolated from him, so estranged yeah. from him that I really didn't, you know, envision the whole, you know, what does she think that he's going through right now in his head? To some extent, mm -hmm. I think she almost, almost doesn't care. You know, I mean, the fact that mm -hmm. she has made the decision to move to California and that would leave him alone in Queens and that he has no other support structure, I think that's something significant. And, and I don't think that makes her a bad person. I think it just tells you something about what her dynamic with her father has been. Right, it tells you about their relationship. Exactly. It tells you about their relationship, yeah. you know, and who the two of them are. And, and the yeah. fact is that... Uh, and, and he actually, he does have some sympathy. He understands that he should he did not treat her as well as he, he should have. You know, he thinks about if he tells right. her what's going, what's happening, maybe she'll stay. But then he realizes, but he doesn't want her to stay just because he tells her these things. You know, it, it, it's easy. Right. It would be unfair. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's unfair. He's conflicted. And of course, I mean, part of it is, you know, he does have grandchildren he presumably cares about. And he wants to make sure that they, uh, you know, that maybe they have a, a better childhood than he thinks he gave her, you know. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, too, when you're talking about kind of unintended things in, in, in written work. And that's, I think, what's so tricky about adaptation, is you're never going to adapt everybody's idea of what a story was. Yeah. Because we bring that into it when we're reading it, and then we go see it in the movie, and we're like, no, that was not the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, one thing I, I think of, for example, is Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, which I, I never which saw. We okay, covered well, that. I, I don't know if you probably were talking about I've never saw it, but I've read a lot mm -hmm. about it, and I saw some of the scenes. And I really felt disappointed in that. I mean, obviously what he was doing was his own commentary on Heinlein's novel, right. but as mm -hmm. a result, he was subverting what it was Heinlein was totally. trying to say. And, and to, I was thinking, you know, why didn't yeah. you just adapt The Forever War by Joe Holliman? Because here's a great right. novel response to Starship Troopers. In fact, such a great response that Highline himself even praised it, you know, and mm -hmm. you could have adapted that and that would have been a much more logical adaptation and then those of us who wanted a more um, authentic adaptation of Starship Troopers would have had that chance. But but yeah. that's neither here nor there. Um, I just want to say that I only have like a few more minutes since in, over here in the East Coast it's getting okay. a little later, so... Um, yeah. It is, yeah. Okay, Colin or James, any any kind of wrapping up? Well, I was gonna ask uh, how you, I was gonna ask how you felt about your uh, the adaptation, which you kind of just did, and you know how how you liked it. So I, I loved this adaptation, I, and I would love to work with the director and his team again if the opportunity ever arose. Mm -hmm. I so I do have one uh, one kind of adaptational consideration that I'm curious what what you think and. Um, kind of in the in the way of finding out what are the key elements of a story that you absolutely like non-negotiables i want to see this um and as you said this was adapted and uh, done by an australian company with australian actors and i am fascinated by accents and and so you know i can immediately start watching something and go i think that's an australian person putting on a new york accent um and, <laughs> yeah. and so i was curious you know why not set it in Sydney, would that kind of thing have bothered you if it had been transplanted from New York to Sydney? That would not have bothered me. The, 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 okay. the, the German filmmaker who was trying to do it was obviously, I think, setting it somewhere in Germany. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, actually, to be honest, I was kind of surprised that uh, he chose to set it in New York the, the, the way I had set it, um, and that he was trying to get his actors to, to sort of do, do the accents. 
you know, the accents aren't perfect, but no, no, you know, that that's irrelevant. I, I think, right. you know, had he chosen to set it in Sydney and have her going off somewhere else in Australia, that's not as, I mean, obviously I'm, I grew up in New York city. I, I'm originally right. a New Yorker. So I've, and in fact, the house that, that Abraham Beard is living in is the house I grew up in. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I put that in the story there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's not the one on film. The one in film, is, but on the other hand, the one in film looks very much like the way that I would have envisioned. Um, you know, the, 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 it's like, it, it's not, it's not actually the layout of the house I grew up in, but it is that type of house, you know, the interior, right. it's like that, that's the thing. So I, I think that's a good way of saying it. We're trying to make this definitely Michael Burstein's story on yeah. film, but as long as you hold on to, you know, as you said, what are the essential core elements of the story? And I, and I think it really depends on what the story is. And in my case, the core element is the, it, well, there, there is the, you know, the, the question of what is it to, how will we be remembered? How is it, you know, the, the, how we created the, the stories of the future and the relationship between the father and the daughter, which I think he got, yeah. you know, spot on. Yeah, so, right. If it had been transplanted to Sydney, I, which is what I was expecting, I was expecting it to be set in Australia. I oh, would really? Have been perfectly f- yeah, <laughs> That's I, funny. I, I would. Yeah, I, I would have been fine with that. Yeah. But, uh, but I'm frankly, I was very glad that he did keep it in New York because, in a way, yeah. it keeps it more authentically the story as I wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one one thing that we all noticed and were kind of geeking out about when we were watching the movie is is looking at all the. Um, all the book titles. Oh yeah, that was fantastic. Yes. Oh yeah, that was. So I, I, cool. I saw that. I was like, yes, this, this, he obviously knows what he's doing and who this guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. No, I, I love that too. I, I thought that yeah. was a, a very a very nice touch. You know, and very fantastic and showed, showed detail. Under, understand? Yeah, understanding of who these characters were. Yeah. Well, should we wrap up real quick and then let Michael get back to his family and get some sleep tonight? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and we we can we can sign off after after Michael signs off if you want, and uh, sure, you sure. Know, we could we could continue our discussion if if we want. But before we sign off, we we want to make sure that uh, you get to you know say where people can find you and that kind of thing. So where people can find me? Yes, I, I have a website which is at mabfan.com. That's M-A-B for my initials, Michael A. Burstein, and then fan like a science fiction fan, mabfan.com. Um, I spend a lot of my social media time mostly on Facebook, which is, interestingly enough, facebook.com slash mabfan. Uh, if you're looking for me on Twitter, I am at mabfan. Do you sense a pattern here? It's <laughs> very um, consistent. I like so, it. Yeah. So, uh, so if, you're look, if you're looking to interact, really, Facebook is your best bet, though I do have some of a Twitter presence. Um, I also still have a live journal, which um, doesn't get updated as much as it should at mabfan.livejournal.com. Uh, and if you want to find out more about the book, I Remember the Future, uh, you can go to BursteinBooks.com. That's B-U-R-S-T-E-I-N-B-O-O-K-S.com. Um, and if you're interested in you know, buying I Remember the Future, the collection, after hearing this interview, by all means, go to the Apex Publications site, apexpublications.com, no, apexbookcompany.com, uh, and you can buy the ebook directly from them, or you could even... You know, I think it's still available as hardcover or paperback. You can find it on Amazon, all these other places. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, those are pretty much the best places to find me. Nice. Is there just real quick? Is there anything you're working on that you want to plug real quick? I well, actually, yes. Thank you for, for bringing this up. Um, I I've been working in this shared universe 
uh, called, I think I would pronounce it Pangea, which is um, the, the writer and editor Michael Jan Friedman. He's written a lot of great books, a lot of tie-in novels. He's written some of my favorite Star Trek tie-in novels. Um, mm -hmm. Michael last year invited me into a Kickstarter project uh, about that he envisioned a, a, an alternate version of Earth in which Pangea never broke up. And I'm in it with a whole bunch of other really great writers, uh, and we've, we wrote all these stories for it. And the book came out just a few months ago, and I wrote a story in it called The World Together, uh, wow. which is set in one of the, 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 the Plains continents and involves these two um, uh, teenage girls who um, um, become friends and, and, and how a, a major event on that world uh, affects them. And I would say that um, uh, if people are interested, they could find out more about Pangea at the Crazy 8 Press website. I think it's crazy 8 as a number press.com. You could look that up. I will uh, look it up. You know, and, and, and I don't want to jump any guns here, but you know, people, if they're interested in this Pangea shared universe, they might want to keep an eye out on social media over the next few months to see if anything new might be happening in it. Um, but so that, that's like my latest work that I was involved with. Um, I'm always working on other projects. You know, I, I've been a little stalled on, on short fiction, but I've been, uh, picking it up again. So I'm hoping to be able to have more stuff that I, I anything I do, I'll announce on Facebook. I think the, the, the biggest thing, you know, if you have any audience in, uh, mainland China, um, <laughs> science fiction world, which is the premier you know, science fiction magazine in China. And in fact, it is, it is the science fiction magazine has the largest um, circulation in the world. In their November issue, just translated and reprinted a story of mine called The Soldier Within, which was a story that was actually um, requested uh, from me by Joe Haldeman for a, an anthology he did called, I think, Future Weapons of War a few years ago. And this is my first publication uh, in... Uh, science fiction world, my first translation into Chinese, and I, I was delighted yeah. uh, to have him do it. And in fact, I, I know it's a good translation because a, a friend of mine who is a, um, a Chinese-American uh, librarian here in my town uh, was interested to see the story, and I sent her the story in both Chinese and English, and she read it, and she said it's a very faithful translation. Oh, that's so, cool. Uh, you know, so if, you, if you've got any people listening in China, you can track down the November 2015 issue of Science Fiction World and read one of my stories in translation. Um, and other than that, we'll, we'll see what other works are, are going to come out soon. Alrighty. Well, Michael, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Um, yeah, you were just rolling for a while there, and I thought, I, I'm not sure I need to be here. Uh, <laughs> and, and I mean that in the best possible way. Well, well, so. well thank you very much. It was uh, very good. Thank you very much. If you ever decide you want to have me on again just to talk about something else, uh, not my own work, uh, feel free to get in touch, and I'll try to make the time. Okay. Thank you. If you have a favorite uh, adaptation out there and, and you think we should cover it, uh, by all means, let us know, and you ooh. can come on and talk about it. You're talking you're, you're – ta you're ta well, I'm just thinking, ooh, I'm talking about like adaptation specifically <laughs> to film or adaptation to anything or – are you uh, specifically a film? Book, book to visual is is book the only. Visual. I mean, and you know, short story, obviously, and you know, on you, up. I, I you know I don't know if you've seen it. There's there's an adaptation of Asimov's The Last Question that's out there as a visual on the internet. That's this beautiful work of art that you scroll down, hmm. and it's gorgeous. And my only concern about it is that I suspect that the the artist did not secure any rights at all to do this. Oh. But on the other hand, it, it a lot of people are reading the story, and it's sort of you know, bringing attention to it. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's, uh, so anyway, but I, I will think, I will think. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, Thank and, you very and much, when, Michael. Once, Have once a good it, evening. You too. And when, when it, when it gets published and, and posted, 
uh, I want to make sure to like have a link that I can send people to, and I'd love to get you know an independent MP3 file of it or whatever, so I can have it on my own. Yeah, it'll be up on our website. You can download Excellent. it from there. That works yep. perfectly. Okay. All right. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Ah. Wow, that seemed to have ended the call for everybody. Anybody still recording? I'm still recording. <laughs> I'm still recording as well. Um, boy, he was rolling there. Yeah, wow. that was pretty awesome. <laughs> that was crazy. So for anybody out there listening, you know, uh, you got substantially less of us in this podcast than is typical. Um, but it's, you know, it's the first time we've actually done something like this where we had the content creator on while talking about the yeah. thing under consideration. Well, so, that was cool. Yeah. So it's a really good yeah. thing. It is. I agree. So thank you again, Michael. Uh, I guess we can pretty much sign off here. I don't think we need to rank them. You know, of, of course we had Michael on, so we have to favor the story, right? Right. But, yeah. Naturally. But you know, uh, just, just from my <laughs> side, sometimes I've ranked things and said, well, just because I rank one of the other doesn't make them good. Both exactly. the short story and the short film are wonderful. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's worth your time to go and, and find it online and we'll provide a link to that mm-hmm. and to go watch it and to look what a beautiful adaptation, a well-made adaptation, how well it can be done. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, you have to kind of think it's good if he thinks it's good, right? So, yeah, he speaks very highly of it. I thought it was really interesting too. the The idea of of why this particular story was cool was a good thing to do for an adaptation for, um, for a screenwriter and for a filmmaker because it it gave them that opportunity to play in those different sandboxes, um, of the different little vignettes. Right. So, that was cool. Well, and the director probably has a great future ahead of him. Yeah, we, you know, we should we should probably watch for more of his works. Uh, mm-hmm. Seth, I also found a link to an interview with the director that said why he picked the book. Um, some interesting things about the about the actors, like the actors came and worked with him because they read the story and loved it so much they wanted to be a part of the project. Yeah. So um, it says a lot about the quality of, of Michael's writing and how much people really enjoy what he's done. I guess we we, we can go ahead and talk about what we're going to do next, just really quickly. We have been in talks with the Book vs. Movie podcast for a while to do kind of a crossover, and Margot D. from Book vs. Movie is going to come on with us in a couple weeks and cover The Hunger Games. So that's something to be reading and watching movie if you're out there. Yep. And that's everything we have totally planned in terms of when we're going to do it. Right. You ready to sign off? Let's do yeah. It. Yeah. You got a blessing for us? I do. I'm going to go traditional because, you know, the the idea of uh, respecting what's gone before and, you know, it worked for us for a long time. So got to go back to it. Sure. Everybody, uh, thank you so much for listening to us. Of course, you can find us at pavementpodcast.com and we do invite you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and our social media username is Pavement Podcast. But even if you don't, thank you for being out there and listening. And we will talk to you next time. So until then, we will leave you with the traditional Pavement Pounders blessing. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the book always fall open to where you left off. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Let me pull up the questions, and we'll pretend like none of that stuff happened. <laughs> this is a lot easier than live radio, I'll tell you that much. Right. Definitely. Yeah. That's, that's why we don't get paid for this. Oh, will this go on? Can I, can I drag this onto Google Drive? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should be able to. Okay. Oh, then, you're then. talking to somebody else. Well, my my wife is here, and and so you know, she you says go. hi. She her. I, I I mentioned you by the way in the in the interview uh, in Nomi. So just so you know, all the oh. like you taking me to my first science fiction convention, and she thumbs up on that. So. And it's a very awesome. nice mention, by the way, too. And they say it's a very nice mention.
Sorry, I'm texting. My wife was wondering why we're not off yet. Because <laughs> this was really, really good. <laughs> Unstoppable juggernaut of Michael Burstein. 